So today I'm going to talk about gratitude, which is something that can be a bit hard to come by in these days of extended winter and political turmoil. This particular story I want to start with begins at 3.15 in the morning, a time when most of us are just grateful to be asleep. But 3.15 is when that alarm went off. I was sleeping in a simple, comfortable bedroom in Lake City, Minnesota, which, as most of you probably know, is about an hour and a half downriver from Minneapolis. I was on a work assignment in my old job as a newspaper reporter, and I was staying at a friend's in Lake City because I needed to be in Winona by 5 a.m. If I had stayed at home in the Twin Cities, I would have had to get up even earlier. So 3.15 was sleeping in. I was grateful for that. Lake City may be a river town, but it's called Lake City because it's at a spot where the Mississippi River widens out into the big curving expanse of Lake Pepin. The area is full of woods and bluffs, and it's one of my favorite places anywhere. If I had to be awake in those wee hours, Lake Pepin was a good place to be. I pried, myself, pried my eyes partly open, dragged myself out of bed, made myself as presentable as possible, packed a few things to eat, and grabbed my laptop bag. I was out the door and on my way by 4 a.m. I turned south onto the Great River Road and passed through the center of town. My car seemed to be the only moving object around. But there were signs that the day was stirring. Once I got past the edge of town with the streetlights behind me, I noticed the faintest easing of the darkness in the eastern sky. A few miles later, the palest pink light brushed the top of the bluffs on my side of the river. It was like the opposite of a curtain rising, as the warm glow began to make its way down the tree-covered limestone. As dawn got closer, the river value became a canyon of sunrise colors. Oranges and blues and pinks spun together and bouncing off the river and from bluff to bluff. I know that I could not even begin to create a sunrise or a 400-foot bluff, nor could I carve a river valley out of limestone using only water collected from the sky. That morning, I could claim no credit whatsoever for the beauty that had unfurled before me. It was the gift of that day and the world we have inherited. I was humbled, and I was grateful. Gratitude often springs from those things that we cannot do or do not do for ourselves. It springs from a place of humility. <coughs> I'm not one to get out of bed solely for the purpose of viewing a sunrise. And yet some spectacular sunrises have been given to me in my life. That morning along the river, I was grateful for the assignment from my job, for the hospitality of my friend in Lake City, and for the morning itself. Going a bit deeper into the idea of humility and gratitude, I want to take you down the river for a little while longer. This pre-dawn drive I'm taking you on took place on one of the longest days of the year, in June. And so when I got to Winona around 5, the sky had quite a bit of light to it. It was also a warm day. Jackets were not needed. I was in Winona on this Monday morning because something unexpected had happened. Something that separated the two sides of the Great River. A surprise, as it were. The bridge at Winona, the only bridge across the river for a 60-mile stretch, had suddenly been shut down. This was during that uneasy and sobering time when we Minnesotans had realized that we could not take our bridges for granted. 
The closing of the bridge meant that thousands of people who crossed it every day suddenly faced a disorienting change and experienced a humbling sense of powerlessness over their daily lives and livelihoods. When the bridge that we thought we were going to take to the next part of our lives is no longer available, how do we keep going? Where do we turn? The answer to that question can sometimes be found in community. The community of our congregation, the community of our families, the communities in which we live. I was in Winona on that early morning to witness that community's efforts to keep itself connected. Winona had grown up as a riverboat town, and with the bridge closed, it turned toward its history for a solution. Using a couple of large tour boats brought in from other river towns, Winona's leaders mapped out a system of ferries and shuttle buses to try to get workers from the Wisconsin side over to their jobs in Minnesota. The planners did their best and hoped for their best on very short notice. I waited with them on the levee on the Winona side uh, that morning near a monument of a steamboat to see whether the plan would work, whether people would be willing to give it a try. We looked out across the swiftly flowing waters toward the park on the other side. And as the sun finally eased above the horizon, people showed up. A lot of people showed up. They rode in on school buses from towns up and down the far side of the river. Some wore business attire and some wore factory clothes. They came in such numbers that they soon filled the beach on the riverbank. And a crowded tour boat made the first trip across the river just before six. The closing of the bridge had disrupted these people's lives, but anger was not an emotion that was in evidence. These factory workers and office workers knew that they could no more build their own highway bridge than I could build a sunrise. Their community, led by their government officials, had come together to help. A thousand commuters showed up that day at the river. They were humble and they were grateful. Sometimes the path from humility to gratitude runs through community, but there are other paths too. The words humility, humble, humanity, and humor all have the same linguistic root. It's a Latin root meaning earth. If we are down to earth, we are humble. In our humanity, in our time as humans, we are of the earth and we return to the earth. During our time on earth, we are human with all the frail, frailty and mortality and potential for transcendence that humanity implies. And sometimes the way to accept our humanity and our frailty, sometimes the way to accept the contradictions of the human experience is through humor. I have another story to share, and like a lot of my stories, this one takes place during time I've spent on the road. About 11 years ago, I set out to write a book, a book I talked about on September 11th one year. But this book required me to, well, this, this, for this book, I aimed to interview at least one person from each of the 50 states. I had never tried to write a book before, and at the outset, I acknowledged to myself that I didn't really know what I was doing. I did not, however, see this as a reason not to try. I approached the project from a place of humility, ready to forgive myself for whatever might not go perfectly or might not turn out as planned. Like those officials in Winona, I got as much ready as I could possibly do ahead of time, but I was also seriously winging it. For a total of about 12 weeks, I traveled the country in my used Corolla, driving hundreds of miles at a time, trying to schedule appointments with people I'd never met in states I'd never been to. 
And things often did not go perfectly or turn out as planned. People who agreed to meet with me would suddenly not call back or have a change of plans or a change of heart. And on long stretches of desert highway, when I began to feel tired and frustrated and lonely, I sometimes found myself stewing over the unreliability of my fellow human beings. This kind of thinking eventually made me grow weary of my own company. So I decided it was time to have a little talk with myself. Look, I said, you can either hate everybody or love everybody. What's it going to be? The reality was that every single person who had agreed to meet with me, a total stranger from Minnesota, was doing me a favor. And I couldn't have been doing what I was doing without them. Whenever I lost sight of that humility, I lost sight of a sense of gratitude. And I became less of the kind of person I wanted to be. Along the way on these road trips, I was regularly reminded of my own humanity. While I had no experience trying to write a book, I had always had a good sense of direction and had been quite handy with maps and navigation and wayfinding in general. But pretty early in my road trips, I realized that I was not always going to end up taking the most direct and efficient route to my destination. I would fail to see a street sign, or I wouldn't read the directions closely enough, or I'd be in the wrong lane at the wrong time. This was back before your phone could tell you what you needed to do every step of the way. This kind of wrong turn happened more frequently than I expected, and I came to think of it as my one wrong turn per day. I never knew when it was going to happen, of course. If I had known, I would make it not happen. But the one wrong turn per day really did happen every single day. And at whatever point in the day it did happen, I tended to realize it pretty quickly as the exit flew by or the building flew by. And then I would laugh. I would laugh out of relief that I had gotten the one wrong turn out of the way for the day. And I would laugh because in the back of my mind, there was still a part of me wanting to be perfect, still subconsciously thinking that maybe today would be the one day that I wouldn't take a wrong turn. But I always did. The wrong turns surprised me and kept me humble. And I was grateful for the humor in my own imperfection. Sometimes we can find the humor of our own humanity by ourselves, but sometimes the path from humility to gratitude runs through both humor and community. Humor and community can be a tricky thing because humor is like a high quality knife. Used carefully and with good intentions, humor can cut through the absurd contradictions of human existence and create joyful laughter. But humor can also create deep wounds, and so care must be taken. This next story I want to tell you today is about a community that took good care of me in good humor. It's yet another story that involves motorized vehicles, so let's take one more ride together this morning. When I was 19, I worked as a summer intern on the copy desk at what was then called the St. Paul Pioneer Press Dispatch, the world's longest newspaper name in a not very big city. I just finished my sophomore year, of, sophomore year of college, and I moved to the Twin Cities for the, for the summer, for the first time ever. I was living in a studio apartment off Dale Street in St. Paul. And every afternoon, I would, ride my, I would ride my newly purchased red motor scooter down the hill to the newspaper where I worked the evening shift. It was a Honda Spree. Remember those, if you might, if anybody remember those? It was 300 bucks I got it used. One Saturday night, just a few weeks into my internship, I went out with a group of editors after work. 
As a 19-year-old who did not want to end up in any newspaper coverage about underage drinking, I had soft drinks while my coworkers had a beer or two. They also played an arcade game called Paperboy. It was an old school video game with low resolution graphics, and I think it cost a couple of quarters to play. The idea of the game was to deliver the newspapers to the correct houses without getting attacked by a dog or run over. <laughs> I was amused that there was such a game because only two summers earlier, I had still been working as an actual paper boy. Now I was working at a journal, as a journalist at a good paper in a good city. I was very grateful. After we all left the bar at some late hour, a coworker gave me a ride back over to the newspaper building where I had locked up my red scooter at the bike rack. We pulled up to the curb, and as I looked over at the bike rack, it took a moment for my mind to comprehend what had happened. The bike rack was empty. My scooter was gone. I was shocked. What kind of city was this where the natives stole the scooters of innocent interns? I felt violated and a bit fearful. And then I felt the inside of my pocket where my keys should have been. I left my keys in the scooter. I had basically given the scooter away, and with it the keys to my apartment. It was the middle of the night. I had no transportation and no home to go to. My coworker was very kind. She had only planned on giving me a quick ride to my scooter, and instead she wound up preparing a bed for me on her couch. She even toasted a bagel for me in the morning before taking me to get a new key for my apartment. As I grappled with my humiliation, she was incredibly kind. Her kindness helped me to change my focus from humiliation to a humble gratitude. Embarrassed as I was to have about having lost my scooter to some unknown St. Paul Hellions, I did still have to go back to work. But I found my place of gratitude. I quickly figured out how to take the bus to most of the places my scooter had taken me. However, bus service out of downtown St. Paul when my shift was over at midnight was pretty sparse. But I didn't have to worry about it. My coworkers gave me a ride, every, ride home every single night for the rest of my internship. I was humbled and grateful. I can laugh about this story now and frequently do, but I couldn't laugh about it right away. My coworkers tried their best not to laugh too soon. They politely waited until they could laugh with me and not at me. And by the end of the summer, we were all laughing together. That August, there was a going-away party for the summer interns. The woman whose couch I had slept on was the exuberant hostess of the party. And here's what she wrote at the bottom of the party invitations. Special valet parking by Fody. Kiss your car goodbye. Those were the actual words, but what those words really meant was, we love you. You're human. We're human, too. Let's find joy together. So the paths to a humble gratitude are many. We can get there by noticing and by being open, noticing and being open to those things that we do not do or cannot do for ourselves. We can be open to the unexpected beauty of a sunrise. We can be aware of our toughened heart and try to soften it with practices of gratitude, daily rituals of remembrance or appreciation. We may find gratitude in community, and the power of community to carry us from one place to another when we cannot carry ourselves. I've only illustrated a few of the paths. You have stories from your own experiences. 
And a humble gratitude may not be just the result of a linear progression along a path. A humble gratitude may be part of a virtuous cycle, one in which gratitude leads to more actions that lead to more gratitude. And we may find ourselves transformed. I know it's true for me, and here's why. My red scooter disappeared in downtown St. Paul three decades ago, but that story has obviously stayed with me. I long ago let go of the annoyance that happened that day. What stayed with me were the humility and the gratitude. The following summer, when I bought a used car, I paid cash for it, but I knew I was in debt. I owed the world for the dozens of rides I had received the previous summer and for the hundreds and probably thousands of rides I had received in my life. I learned for all time what it was like to be the person in need, the person stranded at home, the person grateful for the ride. And so I've made it a point to, whenever possible, in my life and in my ministry, help people get where they want and need to go. These experiences have informed my theology, my belief that all of us are worthy of the kinds of salvation that happen here in this life and that it's up to us humans to do the saving. Saving from isolation, saving from disconnection, saving from feeling too humiliated to ask for the help we need to live into our full humanity. As we head back out into that cold world after our time together this morning, may we ask for help and may we offer it. May we give and receive. May we be grateful and humble and may we find unexpected blessings along whatever paths we take. May it be so.